you're listening to Sermon Audio from Redeemer Church, where we are disciples of Jesus in life together, making disciples. To check out our other media, or to find out more information about our church, visit RedeemerSGF.com. If you guys would, please open your Bibles to the book of 1 Peter, chapter 4. We were there last week in chapter 3, but we will be in the 4th chapter, 1 Peter chapter 4. We'll look at the first 11 verses in 1 Peter 4, but really kind of the hone in is going to be around verse 10. So as you're, as you're turning there, I, don't, I know there's a lot of kiddos here. A lot of us have interesting conversations at the dinner table with our kids or just at random times. But it's not really uncommon uh, for Chanel and I to be asked maybe at the dinner table as we're giving thanks and prayer and thanking God for providing for our kids to say, you know, why do we thank God for providing? Daddy, it's your job that gives us money and mommy is the one who makes the food. So why are we giving thanks to God? What did he actually do? (laughs) That is proof children are depraved, first of all, right? It's a great question. It's a question we even as adults, we still ask. It's kind of hard to kind of picture because you're not tangibly seeing Jesus walk down and hand you something or the Father give you something. But it's a really a biblical understanding of seeing how the Father works through us. But it's often difficult just in our world where we see everything as mine. This is mine. This is my house. This is my family. This is my job. This is my property. This is mine, mine, mine. And it's not wrong, but it is so often covered in the language of ours. This is mine. And we often forget who really owns the things that we claim to be ours. Not just things, even our mind, our knowledge, relationships. We become so familiar and comfortable with the language of mine that even our children can become confused at times. So the task at hand for us as disciples will not be a very difficult one in terms of understanding language or understanding things biblically. The task at hand is going to be maybe a minor shift or nuance in the language. We're talking about stewardship here. It goes from this is mine to This is mine that the Lord has given me. And that's not very difficult to go from this is mine to this is mine that the Lord has given me. Right? We can shift that language. That's not the difficulty. What will be difficult is the outworking of that definition. The outworking of it. That ultimately changes everything. And so if you guys weren't here last week, I I painted the picture of where we're going in the next... Six to nine months, if you will. We have kind of three major building blocks we're focusing on as we continue in this theme from Scripture and preparing to build. One is biblical values. The second is biblical training. And the third is biblical deacons. And so in that first building block of biblical values, this is stewardship, one of the four biblical values that we're going to be teaching on. And this is our focus today. Stewardship in its most basic form and definition is really managing something that is someone else's. 
The Bible uses that word in Scripture, but there is a much more richer, there's a richer, more grounded, deeper meaning that comes from the Gospel. I had come up with this definition. This is my own. You can pull that up if you're able. It is wordy. Well, you may not be able to see that. (laughs) If it gets up there, it is wordy, but it's because I wrestled with it for so long. How do you define concisely something that is so big, so much bigger than ourselves? And here's what I came up with. God, the one who has created and owns all things, has graciously given to those of us in Christ responsibility with and access to His unlimited strength and supply of grace in order to give all of who we are, all of what we have, for the purpose of speaking and living the Gospel of Jesus, both within the church and among the world, so that in everything... God might be glorified through Jesus Christ. I'm not going to repeat that because it's long and lengthy, but I can send it out. This is my wrestling, working through what the Scripture teaches us about stewardship. And so that is the focus today, biblical stewardship. 1 Peter 4 is one of several New Testament passages that does speak of stewardship. Peter here speaks of it as a virtue or a value in the Christian life. Stewardship in this passage is a virtue for the serving and the speaking of the gospel to one another with that end goal that in everything God would be glorified. He would be worshipped in the fact that He has dominion over all things. And so the bigger picture of 1 Peter. I mentioned last week, Peter addresses to the church to the elect exiles all over the dispersion, all over Asia, the first century church that was now the persecuted church living under the Roman Empire. Peter, in this letter, he calls the church to be holy. And he calls them to be holy, aware that they are being persecuted. And to also be aware that they are not being persecuted in a vacuum. Their Lord, their Savior, their Christ was first persecuted and rejected by the world. And we are not to be surprised by that, is what Peter is saying. And when you face these trials of various kinds, rejoice. The church was persecuted, and for the Gentiles, the church was nothing more. When When the Gentiles all over the dispersion was looking at the church, all they saw, as scholar Karen Jobes puts it, was a bunch of killjoys. People who just ruined the party because they condemned the pleasures of an indulgent temper, sex outside marriage, drinking, slander, lying, covetousness, and theft. Christians even refused to burn incense to the emperor. All of these things is what the Christians stood for in this time. It sounds almost identical to what we are dealing with. The community, the church community was just seen as a bunch of prudes and traitors to the Roman way of living. But even still, even amidst all of that, the church could and was supposed to live freely as exiles, seeing themselves as exiles. That is, this world is not our home. 
And therefore, you can live in the example of Christ. You can honor the institutions. You can honor human authorities. And even respect slave masters, whether they act justly or unjustly. And these brothers and sisters in the faith face the same ethical dilemmas we face today. And amidst them, they were called to live obedient lives to Christ while simultaneously honor, honoring those around them. And that honorable and holy way of living is nothing foreign to our ears. Peter did not instruct them to go and organize protests, become social activists, or on the opposite, be passive to evil. Rather, Peter called the church to be holy, to suffer like Jesus, to rejoice as you do so, to focus practically in having godly marriages and homes, to live righteously among the church. You see this laid out in the letter. And by doing so, the church would then become a city on a hill, a city that could not be hidden, a beacon of hope and light to a lost and dying world. And as the Christian would live that way, the church would become for the saint an earthly manifestation of the kingdom of God with the anticipation and hope of the fullness of the kingdom of God coming when Jesus returns. And as Peter begins to really land this letter, land the plane, he gives the church instruction more specifically and practically, how to be the church amidst suffering. And this is where the virtue of stewardship comes to bear. To get to stewardship, as Peter lays out, we need to at least hit on verse 1 before we get down to verse 10. And so I'm going to read verses 1 through 11 in their entirety. So if you would, please stand for the reading of the word. First Peter chapter four, beginning in verse one. Since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. For whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin, so as to live for the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. For the time that is past suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do, living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. With respect to this, they are surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery and they malign you. But they will give an account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. For this is why the gospel was preached even to those who are dead, that though judged in the flesh the way people are, they might live in the spirit the way God does. The end of all things is at hand. Therefore, Be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. Above all, keep loving one another earnestly since love covers a multitude of sins. Show hospitality to one another without grumbling. As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. Whoever speaks as one who speaks oracles of God, whoever serves as one who serves by the strength that God supplies in order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. To Him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. You may be seated. 
Peter really, in these first seven verses, is calling us to arm ourselves in the mind of Christ. To arm ourselves in the mind of Christ. So since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. For whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. The goal here is to have a mind like Jesus. For the sake of time, I won't read it, but go back and read 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 21-25. through 25. This is the mind of Christ, the example of Christ that Peter is speaking about. And so, this goal of having a mind of Christ, or thinking in that way, leads to this element of suffering. And this suffering in the flesh leads, leads to this ceasing from sin. This idea of ceasing from sin is not, as we might think right away, that those who suffer for the faith will never, ever sin again. As though we can obtain some sort of perfection this side of heaven. Rather, this mindset is, I am choosing to live according to Christ. I reject the way of sin and choose the way of righteousness. Another way of putting, putting it is, I'm done with it. I am done with sin. It's that mindset that I don't want to sin anymore. I would rather be suffering and choose to suffer for the name of Christ than to give in to sin anymore. He clarifies that point in verse 2 when he says, So as to live the rest of your life, or the rest of the time in the flesh, that is your body, no longer for human passions, for sinful passions, but for the will of God. That is the point that he's talking about here. That is the ceasing from sin. And that Christ-like way is the way we are to live. But there is a way that the world lives. And so Peter says, remember how you once lived. For the time that passed, verse 3, suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do. Living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. These behaviors focus on what pleases the senses, the passions of our flesh, what entices us. The way of the world does not want the mind of Christ. They want a mind that is clouded with drunkenness. They want a life that their bodies are being pleased by the appetites that they crave for. They crave for the creation rather than the Creator. And they want a religion that complements their lawlessness and gods that they can fashion and mold and create into what it is that they want them to be. They don't want a God who causes them to die to self or calls them to die to self and live against the things of the flesh. They want gods that will encourage them to live according to the things of the flesh. But that cannot be the way of the Christian with the mind of Christ. And so in verse 4, with respect to this, they are surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery. What do they do? They malign you. The world loves this excessive indulgence. That's that idea of debauchery. They love excessive indulgences and the worldly pleasures. But to the Christian, the things of the world are completely empty of no value, of no worth, of no satisfaction. To the Christian with the mind of Christ, 
there is instead a never-ending desire to seek Christ over all things. The world desires, will give all it has for the things of the world, but the Christian with its Christ-like mindset is giving all of it has for the sake of knowing Christ. But here's kind of the scary reality for the world. What is exciting and fun for the world ultimately serves as their condemnation before God. Verse 5, they will give an account to Him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. This should put fear into every soul. The indulgences of the flesh, if you are without Christ, will become the closest you have to eternal joy or that you would ever receive. The worldly joys and pleasures will be ultimately your condemnation before God and you will not get a free pass into heaven. But this isn't just also a judgment for sinners. There is judgment for Christians too. And that judgment is ultimately realized in Christ who took on and bore the judgment, bore the wrath on our behalf. But there's good news in the judgment for the believer that there is a greater hope beyond death. There's a greater hope beyond this physical life. This is why Peter says in verse 6, For this is why the Gospel was preached even to those who are dead, that though judged in the flesh the way people are, they might live in the Spirit the way God does. The way that the English Standard Version translates this verse brings a little bit difficulty in understanding. But it's going to be of the utmost importance that we get this right in order for us to understand verses 7-11. through 11. Some have tried to tie this verse in verse 6 back to chapter 3, verse 19, which says, well, I'll read 18 and 19. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteousness for the unrighteous, that He might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit, in which He went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison. Some try to tie this verse 6 back to chapter 3, verse 19, that it's talking about Jesus in this afterlife, if you will, he goes and he preaches to those who are dead. I do not believe at all that these two passages are connected in that sort of event or that sort of way. They do complement one another and they build on the Christian's confidence, but they are not the same thing. I believe chapter 3 verse 19 is speaking of Christ preached victory over sin and death. We say that again. His preached victory over sin and death. And those who are in prison are the fallen angels or as Genesis 6, uh, 6, 1 and 2 says, the sons of God, which we can recognize as fallen angels. Those who have acted wickedly. Those who have fallen and Jesus in His victorious resurrection has proclaimed victory. And I believe chapter 3 verse 22 supports that idea when it says that Jesus who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to Him. 
Jesus resurrected from the dead with great victory and power. And that was proclaimed throughout the cosmos in both the seen and unseen realms. And he puts that victory on display with his sitting on the throne while subjecting angels and authorities and powers to him. So then, in chapter 4, verse 6, if you're tracking with me, in context, we must have, this must have something to do with the judgment that Peter is speaking about in verses 5 and 6. This judgment to the Gentiles. So Peter is not randomly saying, as some would argue, that Jesus went and preached to the dead like purgatory. Like it wouldn't even make sense in this context. Why would just Peter interject a thought like that out of nowhere? Like Jesus is going and offering people a second chance. If he's offering people a second chance, then it doesn't matter how you live. You can live like a pagan. You can live like a Gentile. You don't need to live like a Christian. Go have all the orgies you want and the passions of the flesh that you want. You'll get another chance once you die. That's what that sort of interpretation leads to. But that is not what is going on at all. The construction of this language is of those who died after first knowing the gospel preached to them. Those are the ones who are now physically dead, either as a result of suffering and persecution, martyrdom, or natural causes. They have a life to look forward to at the judgment. The Gentiles do not. It is condemnation for them. But for those who are in Christ Jesus, they have had the gospel preached to them, and for them there is life beyond the grave. And just to give you an example, the NIV or the CSB translation, I think hits this a little bit more clear, and it says it this way. For this is the reason the gospel was preached even to those who are now dead so that they might be judged according to human standards in regard to the body, but live according to God in regard to the Spirit. The Gentiles can put you to death. They can say, oh, we put it into your Christianity. We put it into you know, your, your killjoys. We put it into it all. But no, the Christian says, no, you, you can't touch this. In the words of the great theologian M.C. Hammer. 319 highlights the proclaimed victory of Christ in the resurrection, and 4.6 highlights the applied resurrected life of Christ to the believer in the judgment. So let me say it again. Chapter 3, verse 19 highlights the proclaimed victory of Christ in the resurrection. Chapter 4, verse 6 highlights that applied resurrection and life to the believer. And so that understanding then continues and follows the flow of thought in verse 7 when he says the end of all things is at hand. What Peter is saying, what he's referring to is the resurrection. Jesus has resurrected and now we are awaiting His return. We are closer now to His second coming than we were before, before He died and before He resurrected. And so now Peter, because of this real kind of hefty, rich, deep introduction in verses 1-7, through he will then move now into three practical yet imperative ways to live. But before we get into that, 
I want us to pause for a second and think about our motivation as believers. That's kind of what Peter is getting at in those first verses. What is it that motivates you? What is it that motivates your living, your being, your doing? What is your motivation for living as an exile in the world? It's frustrating wanting to do what is right and do what is right for other people and the world keeps shooting it down and shutting it down. It's frustrating. So it's like we're exiles. But what motivates us to keep going? What is our motivation for choosing to being done with sin and to live in such a way that may ultimately bring the sufferings that Christ Himself endured? The motivation is bound up in the person and work of Christ. Our motivation for everything that we're going to do is bound up in the work and person of Christ. Do you struggle with looking, sounding, being like the world? Do you give excuse and exception to sinning? Or are you done with sin? If you cannot seem to shake being like the world, then there is somewhere a disbelief in the person and the work of Christ. Somewhere rooted in your unwillingness to be done with sin, you are saying then that the resurrection of Jesus is not enough. What more does Jesus need to do in order for you to be done with sin and to take on the mind of Christ? Do the lost people in your life take, off- take offense at your mindset and life choices? Or do they see someone who has a mind just like them who indulges in the same things? The mindsets of Christ brings the Gospel to bear in all of life. The other hides it. One of these mindsets warns the lost world of judgment to come and the other just participates with the world. Of which mindset and lifestyle are you? Are you in the mindset that life this side of heaven is everything, only everything? Are you able to see there is something greater beyond the grave? Do you live with some sort of hope and expectation? One leads to passivity, another avoidance of conflict and suffering, while the other leads to embracing the hard road ahead with great hope, willing to lose it all. One leads to a life of fear and enslavement to the world, the other leads to godly courage and freedom that is untouchable by the world. One mindset says, if you take these things from me, I lose it all. The other says, you can take my life but you cannot take my freedom. Mel Gibson, Braveheart. (laughs) I am culturally relevant, y'all. The resurrection gives us a powerful mindset that frees us from fears. It frees us from condemnation. It frees us from guilt. It frees us from shame. Ultimately freeing us from eternal death. We have eternal life. The resurrection motivates all areas of our living, our being. And if we can't get that right, then we cannot possibly get our mind and behaviors right in our living. 
So there's an urgency in this calling to have the mind of Christ. Because if you don't have that mind, then you will not be able to uphold or come through with the practical outworkings that Peter is going to lay out in verses 7-11. through 11. You cannot, I mean, you can try, you can do the things that are going to be laid out in 7-11, through 11, but if first you don't have this mind that is centered and grounded in Christ, then everything else is going to be done in your own strength or in the strength of the Lord's. So I want to say this to those of you who may be sitting here right now going, man, I, I don't know if I can. I'm struggling. This is difficult. It's okay. We're not looking for perfection here. We're also not going to just sit here and go, well, you can sin a little bit and that's okay. We're not going to do that either. I just want to say this, that we love you. If you're struggling, you're really struggling with this, we love you. We want you to be like Jesus. You are not alone. We will be relentless for you. We will hotly pursue you, pray for you, care for you, minister to you. And there will be nothing except death that can stop us this side of heaven from doing those things. And so I want to encourage you and embolden you to know that you're not on your own, that you have to somehow get this right on your own. You're not alone. And so because of the resurrection, Peter says... Here are three practical yet imperative ways to live. The first in verse 7. To live with a, clear, a clear-minded life that leads to prayer. A clear-minded life that leads to prayer. Therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. Self-controlled being to have understanding about practical matters, and thus be able to act sensibly, to have sound judgment, good sense. The idea of sober-minded is being clear-minded, able to think, having the headspace. And the two together is a clear-minded life that is able to discern the distinction between godliness and the world. This mindset grasps a hold of the resurrection and ultimately its implications. This is an imperative as well. Peter is not allowing anyone in the context of this church to say, well, that's impossible for me. I can't do that at all. No, it is possible through the resurrection of Christ in the power of the Holy Spirit. And why do we do these things? Why are we to have this mind, this this self-controlled, sober-minded sort of life? And the purpose is not to get cleaned up and look the part, to look like you got your life all together. It's not even to make a defense for the faith. He's not saying, hey, get, get ready to go because the Gentiles are coming. We've got to be ready to give a defense for the faith. It's not even being about being clear-minded and controlled so that you can combat the fallen world around you. The purpose is so that you can go to the Lord in prayer. 
that just seems odd to us. Because when we see an issue or see a problem, when we prepare ourselves in some way, whether physically, mentally, whatever it is, we have an objective, and that objective is to go tackle that problem, go tackle that issue. And here, Peter is saying, run to the Lord. And so the clear-minded life then seeks the Lord in prayer for all things. Because when you rightly understand the resurrection, when you rightly understand what Christ has done, you rightly understand that you have no power outside of Christ, that you have no capability outside of Christ, that you do not have the full mind and will and understanding of God Almighty, that you understand what is going on all around you. You need to go to Him in prayer, to seek Him. And so is self-controlled and sober-minded characteristics that describe you and if you're not sure then you can ask yourself do you find yourself running to the lord in prayer when you have good sense of the resurrection and you're truly seeking the mind of christ then you will pray like christ jesus ran to the father in prayer because he was sober-minded and he had self-control He understood he needed the Father's help in the work that he was to do. If Christ needed help, why do we think we don't? And so if you're not praying, then ask yourself by what power and maybe what knowledge is it that you're trusting in? And so if we're to rebuild Redeemer upon Christ, it cannot be done without prayer. We can pull all the strategies we want together. We can do whatever we think is is good. But if it's without prayer, it's going to amount to nothing. If you want to make a difference in the world, it cannot be done apart from prayer. If you want to be better at leading your home, be a better wife or mother or parent, you want to be better witness in the workplace, whatever it is, None of it will matter if you are not living a clear-minded, self-controlled life that ultimately leads you to prayer. The Lord, in essence, let me put it in very simple terms, is saying, I am with you, and I want to continue to be with you as you work through these things. Recognize that I'm with you. Consult me. Allow me to help you. Let me be with you in this, my son or my daughter. Don't go at this alone. So we're to be self-controlled, sober-minded for the sake of prayers. Which means then, probably goes without saying, you cannot rightly pray with a drunken, clouded mind consumed by your sinful desires. I mean, you can go to the Lord in prayer. It's not what He's saying, like, and only in this circumstance. But really, you're clouded in your judgment. God is not asking us to consider being these things. Hey, consider being sober-minded. Consider being self-controlled. No, it's a command. It's an imperative. He's commanding it. This means that you and I have zero excuse to not do these things. You cannot give into excuses for not doing so. And if there is no excuse for the first century church member 
who underwent more mental and physical trauma than most of us combined, then there is no excuse also for the Christian in communist China, for the Christian living in concentration camps in North Korea, and certainly no excuse for those of us who live here in the States. Zero. Do not buy into the lie that you cannot be self-controlled and sober-minded. To say it's impossible is to say the resurrection of Christ is weak and incapable. And that is a lie of the enemy. That's a lie of the fallen, wicked angels that Jesus put under His feet. And so a clear-minded life that leads to prayer is a life that is empowered by God and focused on His will. And when we live in prayer, we begin to see how we are active participants in the blanketing love of God towards others. So we see a blanket of earnest love for the church in verses 8-9. through nine. Above all, keep loving one another earnestly since love covers a multitude of sins. Show hospitality to one another without grumbling. This idea of loving earnestly is really a steadfast pursuit. Is what I was mentioning to some of you who are struggling earlier, there is going to be this steadfast pursuit. This is an enduring pursuit of loving one another. This, this definition means that there is never a time that we stop pursuing to love one another. It's not a seasonal thing. Like, I'm going to take the next few months off from loving people in our church and just, you know, focus on me. No, we never stop it. We pursue to love one another even when it is incredibly difficult. Even when people annoy you, frustrate you, sin against you, wrong you. And why? Because the people in this church, you, me, we are not the enemy. People are not the enemy. We know who the enemy is. The Father examples His steadfast love for us by giving up His Son and through His Son loving us. And so we must then be like our Father, giving up all that we have and all that we can for the sake of loving one another. And why, Peter says? Because love covers a multitude of sins. And again, this is not talking about our love as a means of salvation for others. That if we love you enough, your sins are forgiven, like we're some sort of priest. That's not what Peter's saying. He's talking about a pursuit of love that overcomes, really, the detrimental effects of sins within the body. For a church to maintain unity and remain bonded, not only is the church to be holy, the church is also called to quickly love one another even in all its mess-ups. When sin is surfaced in the church body, it is easy at that point to just heap on shame, guilt, condemnation, and to just stay there. To just be camped there. It's easy to keep making a big deal of being wronged. Hey, you remember when you did this to me? I've never let it go. But when the church overcomes those wrongs with the love of Christ, 
she begins to see the burden of guilt, shame, and condemnation lift from one another. It's when there's freedom. And that is the result. Freedom in God's grace. And that's what the church, especially the first century church, needed more than anything. It's not like if something went wrong within the church body that they could just up and leave and go down the road to another church that was better. They had one church for days. They'd have to literally move away in order to go to another church. And so God is calling the church to live urgently in love with one another. To continue to apply that same mercy, love, and grace that the Father did to you in saving you towards one another. And one way that that love is expressed is through hospitality. Peter gets it. Even in the first century church, when everything's so exciting, right? That's how we think the first century church always is. Just like this awesome Christian party. No, people didn't even want to be hospitable. They were frustrated. There was introverts who didn't like having a lot of people in their house. And so Peter is saying, be hospitable and do it without grumbling. You didn't have church buildings then. You most likely had to meet in a house. But not only that, missionaries would come through, church planters would come through. You would need to meet then, or you might have times of prayer or maybe studying the Word together. And so believers needed to, uh, in both an official and unofficial sense, open their homes and be hospitable to one another. And it can be very easy to be frustrated. Why do we always have to use my house? I'm exhausted. Can we not do this? And he's saying, do it without grumbling. Because hospitality is an expression of the gospel as God has welcomed you. You welcome one another. So there's been some hard things that have been said. But I just want to take this time to say thank you to the entire church body for the ongoing love and grace that has been poured out. For the last 10 years, we have sinned against one another. We have made huge mistakes, little mistakes. We've said harmful things to one another. We've hurt each other's feelings. Like We've done everything that a typical family would do in their own house. We've done it at the church at large. But in all of it, every time there has been this blanket of God's love that has healed our body. And I feel it. It's tangible. It's expressed everywhere. I don't feel the pressure as one of the pastors, to have to perform, to be perfect. Y'all know I'm not perfect. I don't feel that pressure. I feel the love of Christ coming my way. And I think many of you are feeling it across the room. There's times for sure where it begrudgingly we're getting our house ready and fighting with our spouses and yelling at our kids to get the house ready for life group. And it's always like five seconds before the doorbell rings that these things happen. And the doorbell rings and we're like, all right, everybody, no more anger face. Everybody smile. We're going to open the door now. (laughs) We always have to open our home for another life group or another counseling session or another Bible study or have another meeting. But every time we do, the Lord ends up healing us. He heals our grumbling hearts. I can't tell you how many times I've been like, okay, can we just not do it? And I've been grumbling in my own spirit. And then we have a life group or something take place. And after that, I am extremely encouraged. 
I feel ministered to. Love. God shows up and He builds up. Thank you for continuing to be hospitable. And so really, I just want to say to you, keep fighting the good fight. Don't ignore sin and wrongdoing, but engage it with the love of God. Knowing that the love of God leads to repentance, as well as it pulls the church into tighter and tighter unity. And so because of that, we need to have an earnest zeal in our pursuit of love of one another. So as our clear-minded lives are leading us to prayer and earnest love and hospitality for others, it then leads us to rightly steward God's gift of grace to us through service. When you, see how, you see how all of this builds upon itself and is leading to this point. could necessarily just start there. And so we see in 10 and 11, serving one another as stewarding God's grace. Verse 10, as each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. So every Christian has received a gift according to God's varied grace. This means that God's grace is not one-dimensional. It's multi-dimensional. He offers grace to all of His people in a variety of ways. And we experience it in a variety of ways. And all of it is centered on the Gospel of Jesus. This could be anything from the list of spiritual gifts in 1 Corinthians 12 to one's stewardship or ownership of land to the money they have in the bank to relationships you have to knowledge maybe to the experience you have with grief and suffering or in parenting, marriage maybe you have a unique skilled labor or trade all of these things And all of life within the church and community is to be seen as a varied grace given. And those varied grace given are to be stewarded in service to both God and His people. And why? This is the Father's way of ministering to His people. And showing His mercy. Showing His compassion. Showing His grace. Showing His love. Showing His closeness. Showing His strength. This is the answer to the question at the dinner table. Why are we thanking God for this? <laughs> Ephesians 4 and verse 6 talks about the church explicitly saying that the church has one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. And grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift therefore it says when he ascended on high he led a host of captives and he gave gifts to men the picture is of jesus the warrior the victorious warrior leading his rescued captives from captivity and giving them all gifts from his treasure and these gifts would be the way that the father works over through and in His people. There should therefore then be an eagerness, a zeal to steward these gifts by our, given by our victor who has ultimately led us to freedom. Because then when the church serves one another with these gifts, it is as though the church is turning to one another and saying, see what Christ has given to me when He delivered me? I now give it to you. 
be blessed. How are these varied gifts of grace to be stewarded? Peter says, through the speaking and the serving of those gifts. That is the whole of one's activities, this speaking and serving. Verse 11, whoever speaks is one who speaks oracles of God. Oracle being a saying of God or an utterance of God. In short, the word of God. The church is responsible to steward their speech to be the words of God towards one another. The church has the word of God. They know the word of God and they are able to speak the word of God. The words we speak to one another are to be representative words of God to the community. This is truly how we are ambassadors for Christ to the world. Paul even encourages the saints in Romans 15, I myself am satisfied about you, my brothers, that you yourselves are full of goodness, filled with all knowledge, and able to instruct one another. The seminary trained, the pastor, the paid ministry staff, whoever it is, they're not the only ones who are able to instruct one another. The church, the body of Christ, we are able to instruct one another. In fact, we've been commanded to do so. To speak to one another the Word of God. So that is one form of stewardship. Second, whoever serves as one who serves by the strength that God supplies. So a steward uses the grace gifted to serve by the strength of God that supplies. And that, in, that supply is endless. It is eternal. And this strength is done in the power of the Spirit, in the assurance of God's Word. This is why our first action is to respond in prayer. (laughs) For it is from God that we receive the assurance of His Word and the assurance of our faith, the courage to act. And He supplies it to us, meaning to make it available whatever is necessary to help and to support the needs So that means God is also eager and earnest to supply us with our needs. Whatever it takes for us to rightly steward both our speech and our service to the body, the Father is going to supply it. Why? Because it's about His glory among His people. And what is that greatest strength and supply needed to the believer to rightly steward? It is love. It is love. This call to steward speech and service is bore out of love. First, that God loved us while we were still sinners. God first loved us. And it is out of love, Ephesians says, that God predestined us to be conformed to His image. It's out of love that God does these things. And then we are to respond in love the two great commandments, to love God and then love neighbor. Love is the greatest strength and supply. And not just any love, but the love of God through Christ Jesus. And then from that strength and from that endless supply, the church is to serve one another with their entire lives, their entire wealth, their entire knowledge, all of their relationships, all their networks, All things, nothing is to be hoarded. Nothing 
And the motivation for all of this is the love of God. And for what reason? In order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. So consider the whole or the everything here. Karen Jobes put it this way so well. Thinking rightly and praying in a manner consistent with God's redemptive work enables a love for one another that persists even when one is hurt by wrongs within the community. When one has correctly apprehended reality, is centered on prayer, and is able to break the cycle of wrongs, one can also speak words that are consistent with God's revelation and serve others with strength that He supplies. It all builds together. So what does it look like to speak the oracles or the word of God to one another? This is not being an obnoxious Bible thumper, right? But one whose every breath, their thought, the meditations of their heart is captured by God's word and so desires to serve one another by way of the life-giving word of God. It's what you breathe. It's what you want others to know. It's easy to give someone a blog or podcast to listen to. That could ultimately be encouragement to them. But those are nothing in comparison to the Word of God. Sometimes it's easy to default to the voices of others because it's hard work to do the digging, to be disciplined in the reading, to meditating on God's Word, to just ferociously searching the treasures of God's Word. We'd rather default to others in that matter. But here's the news, and maybe this will be convicting. Your fellow church member is not seeking the voice of some random person who knows some things. They are needing to hear Christ in you, the hope of glory. Just like a pastor, I am reminded often, remember, shepherd the flock that is among you. So as the flock is here and I've been given a stewarding responsibility to shepherd them, you also, church members, have a stewarding responsibility to the flock among you. I'm not the only one who's supposed to give them what I'm eating. You need to give one another what it is that you're eating on a regular basis. The Word of God. And the Father is making it clear. You and I are called to minister to one another, not some pastor on the other side of the city or the world or some expert on the other side of the globe. And I'm not downplaying any of those things. But what I'm trying to highlight is that God has chosen you to be here in Redeemer and actively speaking to your brothers and sisters the Word of God. We all need you. We all need one another. So what is then influencing your words? Who is the recipient of your words? Who in this room do you still not know? And how might you have the opportunity or seek the opportunity to speak to them the life-giving words of God? Is your speech to one another and the world around you a representative of God? 
when you speak, can the recipients gather that you are not your own authority, but that you are submitted to a greater authority and you stand as a representative of him? Think about what you're doing when you give your skill, your time, your money, your resources, your networks, relationships, whatever it is. Is it in response to the love of God and others? And if not, what is it for? When you serve others as a steward of God's varied gifts, you are not only responding in worship to Him, but you are practically declaring that Jesus is the great gift giver because He rose victorious from the grave. So church, just as a thank you, thank you for giving so much for so long. And I'm not talking about just money, but just giving your life giving your expertise, giving your skills, giving your love, giving your care for so long. You have been kind. I've never seen in our church a belly go hungry, a need not met, a bill not paid that has, not been, made, or that has been made known. You guys are kind like your Father is kind. And so I want you to consider even more deeply how you are going to be needed to serve in the days and months ahead. We need more men serving in our kids' ministry. We need more men to serve and help raise up and disciple this next generation. We need more money to keep fixing this facility so that we can operate as a hub for mission and continue to support and send out more church planters. We need more of your time so that we can have the opportunity to train you up We need your wisdom. We need your knowledge. We need your prayers in the days ahead. We will need deacons in the months ahead. We need all of you and all of who you are as the church body. We need to be served by way of whatever varied gift of grace that the Lord has given to you. We need it. We want it. We must have it. And why? Not so that we can have more things or be a certain cool-looking church in the city or whatever, but so that we can have more of Christ. And that's a worshipful experience to see the varied gifts of grace in the body being on display and being utilized. And that'll not be easy. It'll hurt. But when we begin to lose sight of that goal in our stewardship, may we recall this doxology. To Him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. To Him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Let us live in such a way that when our children ask us why we thank God for His provision, we can give a clear answer. May we live in such a way that the posture and attitude of our hearts reflect a life of stewardship and not a life of self-indulgence and self-centeredness. We have a great motivation. The death and resurrection of Jesus. The ascension of Jesus. We have a great calling to a clear-minded life that results in a life of prayer, earnest love for the church, and a stewarding of God's varied gifts of grace that results in godly speech and service. To Him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen.